0: Hello and welcome back to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Garrick Heilman. I'm the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. The new Bitcoin all-time price high brings renewed public attention to crypto and public attention begets policymaker attention. We're excited to share with you a recent conversation that Blockchain.com co-founder Nick Carey and I had with Peter Van Valkenburgh, director of research at Coin Center, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit focused on cryptocurrency policy research and education. On this episode, we discuss with Peter the current regulatory state of play for non-custodial or what are sometimes called self or unhosted wallets like the blockchain.com wallet, some recently proposed Stable Act legislation covering stablecoins, including the likelihood of whether it will pass, Peter's thoughts on the U.S. government's recent announcement that it is hodling cryptocurrencies. Or anonymity-enhanced crypto assets like Monero and Zcash. We also discuss with Peter central bank digital currencies and whether key CBDC design questions, such as whether CBDC will take a token versus account-based system approach, how much privacy they have, will be settled at the technocratic level, such as at a central bank, or at the political level, like in Congress. And finally, we discuss also with Peter comments from. Ray Daly and others about how if Bitcoin ever gets too big, governments will simply ban it. How likely is that to happen? Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Now to the main event here to chat with the esteemed Peter Van Valkenburg from Coin Center. Just a brief uh, personal note, Peter and I... Um, actually uh, go go back a bit we uh nick mentioned some of the research i've done one of the earlier reports earliest reports i did was a report with peter and jerry Brito from coin center back in 2015 lloyd's of london uh was getting questions from some of their customers about uh ensuring this thing called bitcoin and, and so they hired some guys to come in and write a report so i had the, the pleasure of kind of co-authoring uh uh a vintage Bitcoin research report with Peter and Jerry from 2015. It's out there somewhere. The if you wanna go look at some early vintage Bitcoin research. I think, I think Peter's section explaining very clearly how Bitcoin works uh, probably holds up better than, than, than mine. But uh, Peter, welcome to the, to the, uh, the webinar. It's a, pl- it's a pleasure
1: to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Garrick. Thanks, Nick.
1: Now yeah, we're glad to get the, ba- the band back together. <laughs> Great. Um, so I'll ask the first question, then I'm really going to hand it off to Garrick here. Um, we have a little tradition here, um, Peter, uh, when we onboard new teammates and uh, they introduce themselves to the company. We ask them how they earned their first buck, and uh, when I want to ask that question of you. How was the? How did you earn your first dollar, pound, euro, uh, or peso?
2: Yeah. So so my my first like attempt at a career was was acting. I I was in New York City. I went to an acting conservatory and I I just auditioned a bunch and got into a couple off-off Broadway things that were terrible. But my first buck, my first dollar earned was actually at my mother's preschool uh, summer camp uh, where I would, you know, in between uh, years of high school help do camp counseling for preschoolers, which was good preparation actually for uh, working with government.
1: Love it, thank you very much. So uh, for those that don't know, um, Peter uh, heads research at Coin Center in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little bit about Coin Center's mission and um, also describe what your role is there?
2: Yeah. So like I said, I work with I work with government. Um, Coin Center has been around now for six years. Uh, that paper we co-authored with Garrick um, for Lloyd's was one of the first things we published. Our mission is to be an educational and policy research Resource for people in government who are thinking about how to regulate or whether to regulate uh, cryptocurrencies or how cryptocurrencies fit into existing regulations, like say anti-money laundering policy. And you know, we're not uh, we're not like a trade association. There are a couple of trade associations in the crypto space. Um, Coin Center is more like a civil liberties nonprofit. We don't represent any companies, although. Companies like blockchain uh, have actually supported us um, very generously, and that's what keeps our doors open. But we don't represent blockchain, we don't represent Coinbase, we don't represent anyone uh, specifically. We represent the technology itself and, and individual people's right to use the technology. So just like the Electronic Frontier Foundation is an important voice to defend the internet, coin center is an important voice to defend the open crypto networks built on top of the, ne- uh, the internet.
1: Thank you. Uh, Garrett, I'll hand it off to you.
0: Great. Thanks, Nick. Um, Peter, I think maybe a good place to start, you know, we've had some breaking regulatory developments, which we'll get to here, um, around stable coins, but I, I think for our audience, I think a really nice place to start might be with the, um, you know the noise has been coming out around uh non-custodial wallets or what are sometimes referred to as self-hosted or mm-hmm. unhosted uh the US is uh you know come up with its own term as the US often does uh, likes to be a little bit different would love to hear your thoughts on whether there's any significance to that that un I've heard some chatter online about that that says something about the US's stance here but can you just um First of all, I think a lot of people still are, are you know, new to crypto and what is an unhosted wallet or, or self custody wallet? And what is the latest uh, state of play around regulating these these wallets like the blockchain.com non-custodial wallet?
2: Okay, so, so I mean, in a nutshell, a self-hosted wallet or an unhosted wallet is just a wallet. Um, Coinbase has wallet software that they're running on their servers that hold all of their customers' Bitcoin. And I could personally run a wallet on my cell phone that holds just mine. And a company like blockchain.com, I mean, you guys can speak for yourselves, but is an excellent company for manufacturing and creating software so that if you want to run it on your own phone, instead of trusting a company to run it on servers, you can run your own wallet, hold your own Bitcoin or your other crypto assets. so they're all just wallets. But you know, in regulatory circles, we traditionally regulate intermediaries who hold other people's valuables. So we regulate banks who take dollar deposits. We regulate money transmitters who promise to move your money from point A to point B and hold it in between. And we regulate them for various purposes, whether that's anti-money laundering regulation so that those intermediaries aren't um, the channels through which criminals move money. Um, Or we regulate them for consumer protection purposes so that those intermediaries don't defraud their customers and run away with the funds but we traditionally regulate intermediaries for these purposes and not individuals so this distinction between a company holding your bitcoin as an intermediary like coinbase does versus a so-called self-hosted or unhosted wallet where i'm holding my own maybe using software from a company but the company doesn't hold my bitcoin is important for a regulatory conversation because we're probably, and to give it away, since 2013, we are definitely going to regulate Bitcoin intermediaries, like we regulate PayPal or Venmo or any other intermediary. But we're not going to regulate individuals holding their own Bitcoin any more than we'd try to regulate, say, somebody who just happens to have dollars in a mattress under their bed as a financial institution. That, that wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be good for civil liberties. And nor are we going to regulate say the manufacturer of a safe like we would regulate a bank. And so blockchain and others out there um, who create software that allow people to hold their own Bitcoin are really like safe manufacturers. And we don't hold safe manufacturers liable for weird stuff that people choose to put in their safes. And we shouldn't do the same um, with respect to cryptocurrencies. So in a nutshell, that's why this is an important distinction for policymakers is if only just to make sure that policymakers know that intermediaries in the crypto space, so-called hosted wallet providers, fair game for regulation, but the manufacturers of self-hosted wallet software or the people hosting their own Bitcoin are probably not fair game for the typical heavy duty financial institutional regulation that we would impose on intermediaries. As far as terminology, you know, unhosted versus self-hosted, As I said, this is mostly just a functional distinction that needs to be made so we know that we're only regulating the hosted ones. What we call the not hosted ones is less important. I think it's true that using the term unhosted sounds a little pejorative. It's like, oh, why would you want an unhosted wallet when it could be hosted? It's unhosted. So self-hosted is kind of it, it speaks more to what's really going on here, which is it's not that there's just no one hosting this thing. It's that an American citizen is hosting this thing, as is their God-given right to own stuff, you know? So I like self-hosted, but we could also just say that they're all wallets. But for regulatory purposes, as I explained, some wallets are going to be regulated differently because they're people holding other people's money.
0: Great. That was, uh, that was excellent and uh, very helpful analogies around like the safe manufacturers and, and people putting weird things into them and, and so on. Um, so I guess the next um, topic that I wanted to get to uh, was this breaking news around uh, stable coins. And, and we've seen a lot of action with the stablecoin space. I've published research in recent years on, on this topic um, relates to central bank digital currency what's going on with the now um, Diem name project and and, and formerly Libra, the Facebook led initiative to to launch a global stable coin. Um, What's your take on this breaking stable act? Is this, does this have legs? Uh, You know, there's a lot of chatter on Twitter about, you know, node operators potentially running into trouble by, by performing banking services. Can you kind of explain what's happening here with this act and and where this might go?
2: Yeah. So, so just, you know, I'm, I'm not Coin Center's director of government outreach. Um, there's a great woman, Robin Weissman, who you could have on at some point to talk about the political prospects of something like this because she's been working on the Hill for big companies like NASDAQ before working with us since forever. Um, she probably won't like that I said since forever, um, but <laughs> she's been around. She knows how the Hill works. So she's the right person. If I was to offer just a cursory analysis of that, um, look, most legislation that's been introduced this year and in any year doesn't pass. And this is legislation coming from uh, a member who is inarguably on sort of the left of the Democratic Party and not necessarily in the mainstream of the Democratic Party at the moment. Um, The Democrats control the House. So if Chairman Waters of uh, House Financial Services ends up signing onto this thing or, or thinks that it's okay, then maybe it'll get a hearing, but it might not even get a hearing. Uh, if it goes to a hearing, then maybe it goes to a, you know, committee vote. If it goes to a committee vote, it's going to be tough because you got to get a lot of people on board. If it goes to the House, it's going to be tough because you got to get a lot of people on board. But... It would ultimately have to go to the senate and the senate is still held by the republicans so barring some substantial shifts in the political landscape i would say this does not have um particular legs right now as far as something that's likely to be law within the next year or two years even great and then what does it do um yes so in short it effectively bans stable coins um now it doesn't say that it says uh that we only want things that are referred to as stable coins or things that are referred to as dollars, um, digital dollars or USDC is a, you know, you know, as a dollar in the name. These things should only be issued, says this this piece of legislation by federally insured banks, by Fed member banks, really. And so... None of the companies that currently issue stable coins, whether they're Coinbase and, and Circle with USDC or Gemini dollars um, from, from uh, the Winklevoss twins, or even the decentralized stable coins, of course, which come from smart contracts on Ethereum like Maker, none of these are issued by federally insured banks. And so they would be, according to this law, if it was to be this bill, if it was to become law, not permitted. You would not be permitted to issue those things. If you are the issuer, you would not be permitted really to pass or transact in those things. Um, And that's pretty heavy handed because there are no federal banks that currently do issue stable coins. So basically say there's no more stable coins until a a federal bank decides to issue one, which might never happen because what's what's in it for the banks. And the worst part of the problem here is as you said, this question of whether Ethereum node operators would be subject to liability, quite possibly. So the bill's expansively drafted to say that, look, even if you're just validating transactions that are related to a stable coin, so even if you're just validating the Ethereum blockchain and some of the blockchain content at any particular moment is a smart contract related to DAI or some other stable coin, that is not not permitted. Um, And if it's not permitted, then it's not permitted to run the Ethereum client in the U.S. And that's radical. That's the kind of radical regulation of cryptocurrencies that we've been on the lookout for for a long time because they crush innovation and they destroy civil liberties. It would literally require midnight raids into people's homes to make sure that their computer is not connecting to the Ethereum network and validating transactions. Uh, That's not American. Um, so I think the concerns about this bill are, 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 very legitimate. I would never want to see this become law. I also don't think it has much likelihood of becoming law in the near future though. So we don't necessarily need to panic. We just need to be very, um, Frank with our criticisms, criticisms of it and why it's bad for innovation and why it's bad for the U S and for individuals who just want to use these innovative technologies. And there's a, there's a, there's one final wrinkle that I think is worth pointing out about this bill. Because this bill has perhaps noble um, ends. It says that, look, people who think they're holding a dollar should have the assurances of federal insurance to know that there really is money backing that and that it won't disappear. Right. But there's something very strange about this piece of legislation, if that's the objective. It doesn't apply to things like PayPal or Venmo, which are, you know, digital money that's issued by a non-bank. So... This bill would only outlaw digital I- money issued by a non-bank if it is a quote unquote stablecoin not if it's Western Union or PayPal or Venmo or any of these other things or Apple or Google Pay. So to me that's very odd. Like if you really care about people's, you know, safety of their deposits, why are you just targeting stablecoins which are a relatively small fraction of all the non-bank dollars out there? And I think maybe the Cynical answer is because it's easy to pick on a small industry like the nascent stablecoin industry compared to the more traditional non-banking financial sector. And maybe it's actually supposed to apply to all those companies by looking at a broad meaning of the definition of stablecoins, in which case it's sort of a Trojan horse uh, piece of legislation, which is a little odd.
0: Interesting. Well, that sets up, uh, I think nicely, the next question on, on Central Bank Digital Currencies. And, and this point you raise about kind of the objectives and whether the legislation really meets the political objectives or is there a disconnect. One of the things I've wondered about with regards to central bank digital currencies, a US digital dollar and one of the sponsors of the stable act sponsored some legislation. In March around introducing um, a US digital dollar in a more account based type system so taking the Federal Reserve's existing account system kind of expanding that to allow everyday retail users like ourselves access to a bank account in essence at the Fed. My question, Peter, was do you think um, some of these questions, these design questions around things like a US digital dollar are going to be made at the congressional or political level outside of kind of the technocratic level? You know, For example, how much privacy should a US digital dollar have? That's something that has to be kind of dealt with at the political level. Uh, not at the Brian Brooks or Federal Reserve level. And and what, I mean, should we be concerned if there is this big kind of technical literacy gap uh, that we've often seen, sadly, in Congress, uh, if I can say that, without offending too many people, uh, where, where maybe there's an intention to do something that has a noble intention, as you mentioned, but there's a disconnect between that intention and what's actually proposed as legislation. Um, any, any thoughts on on all that.
2: So, I'd say, first pass. I think it's right that these things get settled on the political level rather than the administrative level. Um, the administrative state, which is you know all of the multi-lettered agencies that we we think of, like the OCC, FinCEN, the SEC. These are not lawmakers. They shouldn't be lawmakers. These are not elected people. These are people appointed by an elected president. Um, But they are then not themselves elected by the by the public. So they shouldn't be making consequential judgments about law and policy. They should just be taking the will of Congress and enforcing it and enacting it. That's the way our constitutional system is supposed to work, that the elected representatives actually get to set policy. So I think it would actually be better if decisions about something as important as, you know, a future form for our national currency are made by Congress and not by arbitrary persons within any particular administration, whether it's the current Trump administration or future Biden administration or other administrations. That's how democracy is supposed to work. Now you're right, Congress doesn't always have the technical chops to make these harder decisions with respect to technologies and and economic systems, because these are complex things where you need specialist knowledge and Congress people are generalists because they have to deal with all of government. I mean, that's where organizations like Coin Center come in, is to come in and educate an office. And you'd be surprised. Um, it varies office to office. But in a lot of offices that we've had a lot of contact with in Congress, there's at least one staff member, sometimes high-ranking staff member for the congressperson, who's extremely well-educated on this stuff and really actually is kind of a fan or cares about the technology. And you mentioned this CBDC um, proposed uh, legislation I don't know if it ever it didn't ever get introduced but there was some draft language floating around who, which was uh, from I believe uh, congresswoman Talib's office just like um, uh, this stable act is, is coming out of her office as well and actually to give congresswoman Talib credit because um, obviously I was a little harsh about the stable act which I think has problems uh, the proposal that CBDC I thought was actually very good from her office um, it had a, a section which directed Treasury to figure out how to issue an actually private bearer instrument like digital dollar, which is like, you know, Zcash or Monero or, or, or Bitcoin with, with mixing. Like that's great. That is what a digital dollar should be. We don't want the digital dollar to be a surveillance tool with a public blockchain or a permission to close blockchain that's nonetheless transparent to everybody in government because then all of your day-to-day transactions are suddenly you know searched and seized, if you will, without a warrant. Um, so I think Congresswoman Tlaib had the right idea with the CBDC um, legislation that she was she was drafting um, and maybe not the right idea with this uh, stable act. Um, but these are complicated issues and it's evolving as I said.
0: Great. On that note, uh, you mentioned Monero and Zcash. I think one of the more uh, surprising things that uh, didn't get a lot of attention in the in the media. I know Jerry commented on this in in uh, you know on Twitter when he saw this was uh, the the disclosure by the Justice Department that some of these cryptocurrencies with I you'll have to help me with the terminology enhanced privacy is, is that the the I correct they've, term? They've
2: they've, <laughs> they've settled recently on anonymity enhanced crypto. So,
0: AECs. AEC, yeah, great. Another another three letter <laughs> anonymity enhanced crypto, and and Monero and Zcash kind of fitting that definition. That those coins, when they're seized by the U.S. government, are not resold or auctioned off like Bitcoin has historically have since you know the early days of the first Silk Road seizures, and there was another. Seizure uh, recently of almost seventy thousand coins, I believe. I, I assume the government's planning to auction those off as well. But I thought that was really an interesting disclosure. Uh, there was, of course, a lot of misinformation. We don't know how much, you know, Monero or Zcash or one or both or more uh, of these coins the government is holding. But it sounds like they're holding at least some, and and. Uh, the fact that they were distinguishing uh, those coins from Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets, I think, was quite interesting. Can you comment on that? Has there been any more that we've learned since since that was mentioned? And 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 what's your take on this kind of somewhat startling and maybe a little concerning development? I mean, it's just bizarre to me. I don't. I don't. Um,
2: <laughs> so it's 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 it, you know when, when there's civil asset forfeiture and there's assets that are seized that are actually like illegal or shouldn't be trafficked in like, um, you know, guns that, that shouldn't be owned, um, by individuals in the U S uh, they destroy firearms in mass, uh, which is kind of interesting rather than selling them back into circulation. Um, probably some nice historic ones too. It's kind of, I'm not a, I'm not a big gun person myself, but that seems kind of like you actually have to like melt down these things or something, what's going on? Uh, with crypto, I, you know, I, I don't get it because well, a couple things. One, crypto is certainly not illegal. So it's not like you should be obligated to destroy it. You, you just wanna stop people from laundering money using it, which you do when you seize it from criminals. And then it's just crypto, it's fungible. It's the same as any other crypto. So why not sell it back to the public? And they do that with Bitcoin. So why would they not do it with Zcash or Monero? I, I, I don't know, um, maybe it's a, a lack of comfort with using the, the that wallet software reliably and not screwing it up or, you know, there are lots of administrative issues um, potentially involved here with managing crypto and selling it and things like that. Um, I, I, I have trouble speculating as to why, but the other thing that's funny is uh, if you're a fan of crypto economics you don't mind this if you're a zcash or monero fan because it's just reducing the supply right which is just going to make it more scarce which is going to make the price go up all other things being held equal so you know maybe maybe that's what's going on maybe they want to secretly boost the uh the price I think the government is
0: now hodling of- monero and zcash, they're holding but- <laughs> the
1: oldest strategy in the book <laughs>
0: yeah yeah no how do you how do you get that kind of publicity right it's like this this uh, torrenting uh, watch list that's published by the government, I think every year is kind of seen as a great like you know marketing tool for for uh, different BitTorrent websites. Uh, you know what what great advertising you can't buy it right or or, or like the IRS is hey here's a bounty to crack uh, Monero. Yeah. Um, you know <laughs> this advertisement for Monero paid by by, uh, by the Internal Revenue Service, but. Um, well, that's I mean, it, it, you know, with with things like lightning, I, I don't know if we how deep in the weeds we want to get into, you know, some of the protocol um, changes to, to Bitcoin in recent years and and taproot uh, and, and additional enhancement of, of privacy. Is, is there like a line or a threshold where you would worry or be concerned that somehow Bitcoin kind of crosses over into the, uh, you know, a uh, is it, sorry, AEC. AEC, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I, I I hope it does crossover. Um, you know, I, I I really like the efforts from the, like, the Wasabi Wallet guys with CoinJoin transactions, and I love the taproot ideas. Um, this is important. We can't have a global economic system that's built on a blockchain if anyone can look at the blockchain and figure out your transaction graph history. Uh, we just can't. Um, and... And, you know, there's, there's sort of some level of privacy from uh, obscurity with the Bitcoin blockchain, because you think like, oh, who's really going to, to, to dig into the blockchain and see my past payment history? But the fact of the matter is there's like extremely lucrative businesses like Chainalysis and Elliptic that make a habit out of selling blockchain analysis, which is de-anonymization, if you will, or, or, or identification. Um, to governments but also to corporations so this doesn't have to be some kind of libertarian concern where you're just worried about the government learning about your transactions this could be just about worrying about corporations learning about your transactions and then targeting you for say predatory interest rates because they know you're crypto poor this is not going to happen now because n- not everybody's assets are on blockchains but it, in a plausible future most of our assets could be on blockchains including things like digital dollars and we can't live in a world then where your entire economic life is for public display. It's just a terrible idea from a you know, threat of totalitarianism standpoint, abuse of corporations with data, privacy issues standpoint, it's just bad. So I hope that it switches. Um, I, I feel like your question was suggesting like, are you worried that it switches, Bitcoin becomes more private because then we'd have more regulatory crackdown? Um, I'd have to say no. Um, You know, Blockchain analysis, which you can do with Bitcoin that maybe you can't do well with Monero or Zcash, is just one tool of several tools that a regulated entity can use to meet their compliance obligations with respect to regulations, with respect to anti-money laundering. And so if it's an incoming Bitcoin transaction to a hosted wallet, like a Coinbase wallet, they have to maybe do a little blockchain analysis to make sure that it's not coming straight from the Silk Road or something like that. But that's not the only way that they can stop money laundering. You know, banks accept cash, you know, at a window. Cash never has any blockchain record of its past transactions, kind of like Monero or Zcash. And yet banks are allowed to deal in large amounts of cash. Why is that? Well, it's because they have other policies that they put in place. Um, They can't do blockchain analysis, obviously, because it's physical cash, but they can do heightened due diligence. They'll ask for more identification from the person who's showing up at their window with cash. They'll ask... Uh, for proof of where they got the cash, like it's from my wages here, look at this tax form from my employer, something like that. And they'll do other they'll do other things, like if it's a large enough cash transaction, they'll file a currency transaction report with FinCEN that just says, look, this is a big cash transaction from our customer. We don't know where it's going, but you should know what's happening. Um, these are all completely valid ways of complying with the Bank Secrecy Act, which is our anti-money laundering law in the US. And nowhere in the BSA does it say, you have to do these things and blockchain analysis. So if blockchain analysis suddenly doesn't work well with Bitcoin, which as I just basically said, I hope it doesn't in the near future, it won't be an existential threat as the laws are currently applied. If there are new laws that come in response to, oh, there's all this money moving around and we can't trace it, well, we'll just have to fight those laws. Like we'd have to fight say the stable act um, that we talked about earlier in the program as effectively un-American. You know, people have a right to hold their own stuff own their own stuff and send their own stuff without there being constant government surveillance and always an ability for the government to stop you from transacting as a prior restraint before you're even convicted of a crime. That would not be American. It's very, um, not to be blunt. It's very Chinese. That's the system. The Chinese are building with their CBDC where the government will see every transaction and be able to stop or disconnect any person from the, from the
0: economy at will
2: without law. It's not American.
0: Great, Nick, um, did you want to come back in? I've got one more question I'd love to ask Peter, but I I don't want to hog
1: I thought um, just sort of a potentially a bit of more of a generic question, um, but from your vantage, Peter, um, you know, what what do you see as one of the biggest like success stories from Coin Center's history? And then um, I think, what are some things you're looking for in 2021 um, to, you know, what does mainstream adoption sort of need um, from your perspective? Uh, that you guys can help enable from the conversation you're having on the Hill. I mean, you guys are really doing the tip of the spear's work on educating people that make really important decisions. Um, and so uh, I welcome a little bit of thinking around what the 2021 strategy is gonna look like for you guys.
2: Sure. So the first question was sort of biggest uh, success to date for Coin Center. Uh, there, there, I'll, I'll mention two briefly. Um, in the last five years that we've been around, six years that we've been around, there, are, there have been primarily two existential threats to Bitcoin uh, and permissionless blockchain networks. And one would have been overzealous application of U.S. securities law regulations to crypto. Uh, people don't realize, I mean, we saw the ICO boom happen. We saw the SEC go after ICOs. Um, especially fraudulent ICOs where people were taking money on a promise of future profits, that's actually fine. I don't see that as a problem because most ICOs are really just somebody's promise to make profits for somebody. And then maybe they deliver their token and maybe then when the token's delivered, it's not a security and it shouldn't be regulated as a security, but the promise is a security. And so that pre-sale should probably be regulated as a security. But a lot of people don't know that when the SEC first started looking at this technology, just at Bitcoin back in 2014, 2015, when we had a few meetings with their their cross-divisional working group on the subject, it was sort of an open question whether even bitcoin would fit into the Howey test and could be regulated as a security. Uh, the Howey test is a flexible standard for what is a security. And if bitcoin had been found by the SEC and later then it would have to be found by a judge to be a security, it would mean it's not allowed to trade anywhere except national securities exchanges, which is like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. It would effectively outlaw all bitcoin trading because national securities exchanges still to this day, don't trade Bitcoin and probably wouldn't. And it would basically destroy American markets in crypto. Um, That didn't happen, I think, at least in part because of our efforts to educate the SEC about why Bitcoin is sufficiently decentralized, i.e. there's miners, there's software developers, there's no one promoter who we rely upon and therefore doesn't fit this Howey test for what is an investment security. And then the other, Big victory I think that, I, that we can take some credit for is with respect to anti-money laundering policy, as I said earlier, when we were describing the difference between a hosted wallet and a self-hosted wallet. Um, FinCEN, which is the agency that regulates for anti-money laundering purposes, came out in 2013 with guidance that said a Bitcoin exchanger um, is a money transmitter, just like PayPal or Venmo, they have to know their customers and file sus- suspicious activity reports. Uh, there's sort of an open question from that point forward Well, if it's just me with my own wallet, am I a money transmitter? Or what if I'm a company that provides multi-signature solutions? So like Bitco is probably one of the best known in this space, but I'm sure blockchain does as well, uh, where we hold one key for customers, but not sufficient keys to transact using their Bitcoin. Um, They're going to hold their own other keys or things like that. What if you're holding just one of three keys? Are you a money transmitter? And so we wanted to make sure that when FinCEN finally opined on all of these more nuanced questions beyond just Coinbase being a money transmitter, that it would be the right opinion that you're only a money transmitter if you're like Coinbase and have full control over the Bitcoin. You're not a money transmitter if you're holding your own uh, or if you're a company that holds one of three keys in a multi-sig arrangement. And FinCEN came out in May 2019 and said, yep, if you don't have independent control over customer Bitcoin, you're not a money transmitter. And so that's exactly the right regulatory settlement. And I think we can take some credit for educating the very good folks at FinCEN um, on how these technologies work and why multisig is important and things like that. Absolutely. And then as far as what I see as the biggest obstacle to adoption, I mean, there are potential regulatory obstacles in the future. So We started out talking about how there's been rumors about uh, regulation of self-hosted wallets. That would be a huge obstacle if you weren't allowed to hold your own stuff. I'm actually fairly confident that we'll be able to fight those off, um, that the people proposing them are in the minority of government, that actually the majority of government um, often doesn't care enough to, to fight that fight or is actually enthusiastic about the technology. I think the real obstacles to crypto are just getting normal people to feel comfortable using it. You know and actually using it for payments not just for speculation and not just for wealth creation and the fact of the matter is it's still really hard to use a wallet to use um, bitcoin for day-to-day transactions let alone to use something private like zcash or monero or bitcoin with privacy where you're going to need a special wallet like wasabi wallet these are really hard tools they need better user interfaces. It's sort of a long, hard uh, effort amongst developers to just build more intuitive systems so that people want to transact with them and then merchants want to accept them as transactions because they want to accept the payment methods that their customers want to use. It's a really hard problem, maybe even a somewhat intractable, intractable problem. Um, but fortunately, that's not my problem. That's your guys's problem.
1: <laughs> the team at blockchain.com will be diligently working on this list of priorities. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter, uh, for your views and perspective today. Um, I think uh, you're doing little, the Lord's work over there in Washington. So thank you, uh, Garrick. I'll leave you the last question.
0: Yeah, i will just mention also a little advertisement for Coin Center. Um, if you want to support, uh, you know, Peter and the work they're doing on on these these critical questions, I, I believe you do take individual donations, not just. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and about and I,
2: half of our donations actually come from passionate individuals in the Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency space.
0: Yep, absolutely. So go to Coin Center and, and help support the work uh, uh, that Peter and, and others there are doing. Um, you know, this this last month we we got another one of these kind of um, comments. This this time from Ray Dalio, uh, one of the most successful hedge fund managers in history. You know, if if Bitcoin ever becomes too big, governments will simply ban or or regulate it. I guess back into being small. Um, you know, I just, this, this kind of comment comes up from time to time and it is a something I think that some folks like Ray kind of like fall back on when they think, oh, you know, this is, you know, why, why should, why should I bother with crypto? It just can't be allowed to succeed. I mean, what's your, what's your take on a comment like that? You know, um, from a government's uniting, getting together to, to, in a coordinated way to ban something like this, how would that even work? What's your reaction to a comment like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the part that's, it's sort of half true, half false, right? The part that's definitely true is, yeah, governments are going to ban it, some governments, and those governments are going to be the geopolitical losers of the 21st century. Are all governments going to get together and systematically ban it? I don't think so, because some, maybe minority of governments, maybe it's a majority, will see the inherent value in the technology to enrich their economies and grow their countries and uh, better their citizens. So I, I think of it just like the internet. Like, did China really want the internet to exist? No, it's an existential threat to their ability to control information within their borders. And if you're a repressive or non-democratic state, you need to control information to not lose control of your country. And China done a pretty decent job, you know, segmenting their internet from the rest of the world, but it's at their own cost, right? Like, I mean, There's lots of prophecies about the ultimate triumph of the Chinese economy globally, but I'd still rather live in the US where we have a free internet and an open internet. And I think longer term, that's better for the US economy and better for the the hopes of of the United States as a nation. So I think it'll be the exact same situation. Some countries will ban permissionless blockchain networks. We've already seen a few try because of capital controls and things like that. and they'll ultimately just be fighting history, uh, which is not gonna be good for anyone, but ultimately they'll lose that fight.
0: Great, that's a nice note to wrap up on. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. A very timely discussion with uh, uh, the breaking regulatory developments. And uh, again, please go to Coin Center to check out all their great um, research and publications. We're actually featuring one in our monthly um, publication, uh, a piece on non-custodial wallets that was published recently. We're, we're, we're republishing uh, on our own uh, monthly uh, publication. And um, yeah, uh, Peter, we hope we can have you on again in the future. That was a lot of fun.
2: Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you, Peter. Good night, everyone.